Welcome to the Coalition 936 podcast. Yet again, coming together for a better community. I am J.P. Heath, a youth prevention coordinator here at the Coalition in the great county of Angelina. This is our first solo interview show here today, but Brent Tanksley, a member of the board here at the Coalition. He also works in the field of recovery, but his office is Hughes Center Counseling that we'll uh, go into and but uh, he can also talk basketball with the best of them and has uh, his own podcast as well that we might get into. But I met him when he was a counselor at ADAC in Lufkin, but we forged a fast bond over some round ball. But Brent has a great story of his own about uh, recovery. Long time no talk. You've got a great yeah, setup well. here. Yeah. I have the gaming headgear. So because I, 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 as I always say, I'm a man, so I play video games. It's kind of different because uh, the uh, generations before, like my dad, I remember him playing like Pong once, you know, and like I, I game with my kids all the time. Like it's just we're, we're constantly talking about the new game launches and things that are coming out. And so uh, I think that's a, a generational thing that has obviously taken a major shift. But, you know, it's something cool to do and keeps me at home and um, stay at home being the dad, being the husband I'm supposed to be. So I always enjoy mm-hmm. gaming fun i've gotten old i think it's the last little bit of competition i have left i think that's another part of it so yeah yeah how are you doing can't complain brother tell us a little bit about first uh your work at hughes center counseling and how it was it it should have been obvious to me beforehand before we hit that red record button but i mean with this covid pandemic and everything that's that's going on here the last five or so months uh you've been working from home so how's that change the dynamic of what you do. And for those that don't really have that experience, uh, kind of talk about what you do in your counseling roles. Well, uh, I'm the program director at Hughes Center Counseling. Uh, we do substance abuse and mental health and faith-based counseling. Um, we, we're all over East Texas. Uh, we're like a county away from uh, Dallas, and we're a county away from Houston. Wow. So we go all the way down the, the, the eastern side of Texas. We're as far out as almost central Texas now. We cover a lot of area. And, uh, you know, our, mem- our number one goal is to uh, go where the obstacles and barriers are, where uh, services are hard to reach for a lot of clients. And so um, kind of COVID and the new approach, the new telehealth and virtual approach has really made it um, kind of uh, launched us into what our primary purpose was when we started. And that was being uh, more accessible to people. Uh, there's a big advantage that we've come across with uh, state allowances for for telehealth and virtual approach. And um, so you and I are looking at each other almost like a a Zoom format right now. And Mm -hmm. that's what I do with my clients primarily. And so it gives me a little window into their home even. And that's neat. You know, it's it's a really cool way. So um, say they can't make it to the office at their scheduled time. Well, I'm not sweating it. I can I can get with them when they can get to me. And then not only that, I get to see the chaos running along behind them. And so when they say, this is what's going on in my life, and they point behind them to all the chaos that's going on behind them, uh, I get to see that. And it's it's been a really big advantage in that way. So it's been, it's been kind of neat. You know? An amazing first answer because that opened up a whole other avenue or two avenues that I could uh, could ask you about and that we will touch on. But from from your side of things, tell us – uh, what have you thought about being involved at the coalition board uh, so far? Because we've had the virtual meetings. I think you've been to uh, one or two of the in-person meetings before the whole world shut down. But 
What have you thought about being involved so far? I love it. Uh, I think it's really cool. It's, uh, you know, I'm real big on uh, what can we do in our own backyard? What can we do in our own community? And the coalition is obviously set up for just that approach that, what you know, what are we doing in our hometown? And so all the projects that we do, and I know there's a lot of focus on um, uh, getting intervention methods and motivational methods for, for the youth and the community. That is, that's probably my biggest passion and uh, helping people is uh, the families around anybody that needs help. They, they seemingly get neglected a lot or overlooked. I'll say overlooked a lot. And then, and then the kids, you know, if, if I, I love, I love anything that's helping these kids out. I think that, Anytime you can take time, energy, funding, and give it to uh, that approach and help these these young people start making proper choices or healthy choices instead of some of the choices that some of us made along the way, you're, you're making a better tomorrow. I think I love the coalition's drive and, and motivation to help in those areas. Yeah, so a little story to back things up a bit. I mentioned it earlier, but Brent and I uh, met and forge that fast bond over round ball. Maybe we'll talk some bubble action and uh, get a finals pick from Brent coming in a second. I'll rag on him for not thinking Michael Jordan is the greatest player of all Great. time. But I, uh, I, dig- oh, that's right. I was telling somebody before we started recording. I couldn't remember who you said. Anyway, Scream. I digress. Okay, I, I wouldn't argue that uh, really. But <laughs> what, um, from what I noticed immediately and knowing about your your backstory and. of people that are in prevention or intervention in the counseling field. And it's the same with coalition and the people I've met at ADAC. And I'm sure it's that way with Burke center and and all across our great state of Texas. But what fuels your motivation to, to be involved on the counseling side of things? I I won't, I won't soften or edit it. I, it was a kind of a, it was a God thing. Uh, In three weeks, it's about three weeks. I'll be 11 years sober when I was in, uh, when I was in rehab, when I was in treatment, I didn't know what to do, and uh, I had one of these really profound moments in my life, and uh, the work that I was doing, I didn't want to go back to doing. I could make a living doing that, but I sure hated it, and uh, so it was one of those things, and uh, in walked my counselor, who in a very short matter of just a few days had made a, a great impact in my life, and uh, he treated me like I was a uh, sick individual rather than a bad person, mm-hmm. and, and that was so impactful to me. And I thought, well, I can do that. And uh, I wouldn't advise anyone that is in rehab to say they want to be a counselor right then and there because it's a long road and it's a lot more than you think that it is. But that was kind of the first domino that fell. I have a wonderful, wonderful support network behind me and my family and friends. And when I got out of uh, treatment, got sober, um, found recovery, uh, they told me to, to get sober and I wanted to go to school. So I went back to school and just kind of everything fell into place. Like I said, it was a God thing. You know, it was exactly what was supposed to happen. Amen. Yep. And uh, kind of how I ended up here. Mm-hmm. So here we are years later. Do you mind sharing your, your personal story recovery when you knew you uh, needed help and, and how that has progressed to what, what I have always heard and what I know from my personal family is once an addict, always an addict. So I know it's a heavy question and I appreciate right. you opening up already, but do you mind sharing some of that, that personal story and, just kind of sure. a, a version that, that, that cause I, I like to hear, and I know our audience would like to hear some of that. Sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, for me, the, 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 uh, journey started young. I was, uh, taking prescription pills within my own home 
that were prescribed to myself or family members. And uh, I know I know it seems like yesterday to, to you and me and forever ago to a lot of us, but it, in the 90s, there just wasn't a lot of uh, dialogue, narrative or education on the dangers of prescription drugs. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I played sports. And so I was a small frame fella, still am. And uh, I would get hurt. And the doctor started prescribing me pain pills. And um, uh, I always say, you know, one cured the the physical pain and two cured the emotional and mental and spiritual pain. And so it just kind of evolved from there. Uh, You know, it took years and years for me to realize that I had a real problem. You know, they say you're not, you you don't have a problem until you say you have a problem is what they always say. And and there's a lot of truth to that because people around me would tell me that I had an issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought my issue was them. And I didn't ever really realize for a long time that my issue was me until, uh, you know, I had my fair share of run-ins with the law. Uh, I had all these wonderful people in my life that were trying to help me, but I didn't want the help. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. I think really where it turned out to be a point when um, I realized that I had a problem, my wife had left with my child and she was pregnant with my second child. I was all alone and I had no one to blame. I won't go into the details of it, but just being alone with the daily routine that is a monotony of despair that I can't really, you only know until you've been there. You only know when you've been there mm-hmm. and, and you're left alone. And, and, and I knew when I couldn't stop, I, I knew I couldn't stop. And a quick story about that is uh, I had been working and um, had made a decent check and um, had used it for everything, but what it was supposed to be used for. And I went and asked to borrow money from my mom and dad so that I could pay my bills. And my dad said, where'd your money go? And I, I didn't even lie at that point. It was just everybody knew what I was doing. And and they gave me money to pay my bills and I didn't go pay my bills. And I was going to go pay my bills. I remember them handing my money and my mom said, you're going to go pay your bills with this money. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to. And I, I got halfway down the driveway and started sobbing like a child because I wasn't going to go pay the bills. You could have given me a lot of detector tests like five minutes before that. And I would have passed it because I was going to pay the bills. And that was probably the biggest moment in my life when I was like, oh my gosh, I have a real problem. Like I, I had no control over it. And, uh, and I went immediately back as soon as I did what I did. And I went and told my parents that I didn't pay the bills. I need to help. And I'll never forget my mom crying. And she goes, my baby. And she was so happy that, and, and, and my dad goes, what? he was mad about the money, rightfully so. And, and she goes, but now he can get help. And so, uh, and I had, I, I, that's the kind of support system I had around me though. I'm very blessed. Not everybody has that. Not a lot of people have that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I did. And so um, that was kind of the first real uh, concerted effort, the group effort of my family that I was on board with. Okay. How do I get better? And so, yeah, that was years ago now. Since you work in counseling, I I knew that we had to ask this, but uh, with with opioids, what can be done better from a preventative measure that is not done and, and what could people look out for, uh, for opioid abuse since you, you have the counseling background and, your personal story background. Could you, could you give some light on that? What people could kind of, that's a big question, but could, could you kind of elaborate on that? Well, you know, uh, what we, what you can do for someone that is, uh, going through it and you're seeing it is, you, you know, there's a big term in, in, in the field and it's kind of about talking about meet them where they are. That's what we always say. You meet them where they are. You try to find out where they are and what you can help them improve in their life without, here's another big word, without enabling them, to continue with that behavior Mm -hmm. and you have to put in hard boundaries and still continue to love them, you know, 
And a lot of it is um, we, the field of addiction is learning more and more all the time. There's been this major rush of uh, new approaches in the last 10, 12 years. I've come in the field at a really exciting time when we're really changing how we look at it and, and where it used to be hard cut lines, like they miss appointments and you discharge them. And we don't do that much anymore. We want to keep them around because as long as we can keep them around, we can keep talking to them and change can occur. And uh, how, you, how you change it at a, at a larger level, I don't really know. Um, I will tell you this, society is built on, um, we, tried to, we tried to incarcerate our way out of the drug problem with the drug war, and we're not winning that war. Amen. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 won't, I, won't, I, won't, I won't even hold back with anybody. We're not going to win that war, so we probably need to readjust how we look at that whole thing. And there's countries that have done that and done that successfully. Uh, I heard a really wonderful guy. Anybody want to go listen to somebody else? His name is John Shinholzer. He's an amazing man. And uh, he said, we have built the perfect typewriter in this country. The problem is, is that we live in the information age and we're still using the typewriter. Um, you know, we're, we're, I believe there's only two countries in the whole world where we, where we advertise prescription drugs on TV. We're one of them. Like, who am I as, a, as an average inf- uh, consumer? To go, I have that medical problem. I'm going to go to my doctor and tell him what my medical problem is. That's not my job. But somehow in our culture, because of big pharmacy, big pharmaceuticals, we've done this. And and I don't know what you do with it, but it's going to take a complete dismantling of the structure that is. And I don't know, you know, that's a that's a piece by piece situation. It's a decriminalizing decriminalizing a lot of things. I'm going. I'm getting into a lot of hot button topics here. Oh, it's fine. And, uh, you know, seven seventy-eight percent of, uh, of of prisons are filled up with nonviolent drug offenders. Well, if they're nonviolent drug offenders, maybe they need to be treated and not caged up. Mm-hmm. And and so we've opened up this whole privatized prison system where it's a money maker. And so now they sign contracts where you have to keep it so full. And if you don't keep it so full, then you have to pay that private company money because you didn't keep it full. Well, now that's prompting at a lower grassroots level that we have to lock up these people so that we don't have to pay this fine or fee at the end of the year. And so now we're looking at people as numbers instead of a, a person, a soul, an entity, a family. So it's, it's, that you, I could go on and on. Like it's, it, it, it breaks my heart because I, I see these people and they're good people. <laughs> There's some of the most interesting people you'll ever meet. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm blessed. I'm truly blessed and floored all the time that I get this great, wonderful opportunity to meet and talk with these people that we dismiss so easily that we cross through the other side of the street when we're on the road and, and we're walking down the sidewalk and we see this guy and we don't want to, we don't want to, we just dismiss him. And that's the way he lives his life is dismissed. And that's not, that's not, that's not good. That's not healthy. So. The average person listening, let's say they have had some experience in their family, but they're not an addict themselves. But how can we do it better just treating uh, the population, the recovering addicts better? What, what's some, what are some simple things to do? Is it? I know, again, we're launching a whole other series of podcasts, I think, that you and I are going to start. But <laughs> <laughs> how could we do well, it better to start with? You know, one of the big things I'm talk- I, I believe in is we change the language. We change the language. So if I were to throw out just a concept that, that uh, I do it all the time, I'm, I'm in a blessed opportunity where I get to go and educate the, well, before COVID, I get to go and educate the public in a face-to-face situation. And I tell them that my name is, I don't walk in the room and say, my name is Brent and I'm an addict. I don't walk in the room and say, my name is Brent and I'm an alcoholic. 
because everybody cringes a little bit. That's, mm-hmm. that's a loaded word. And so I say, my name is Brent. I'm a person in long-term recovery. And what that means for me is that I haven't had the need to put in any mind or mood altering chemicals since August 31st of 2009. And as a direct result of that, my life has gotten unspeakably better and it's brought opportunities to my life that only God could put there. And all of a sudden, nobody has pulled back yet. And, and I, when I talk about being a person with substance use disorder, because that's new clinical terminology, I'm big on that. Now, if we go into rooms of recovery and, you know, I, we sit wherever and we say, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic, that's wonderful. That's the language. We got to know the environment. But if I speak to somebody and I go up to a, a little sweet grandmother after I speak and she's got a grandson going through that and I say, my name is Brent and I'm an addict, she clutches her purse just a little bit. She holds back because her grandson is that and he steals from her. Mm-hmm. But if I say I'm Brent, I'm a person in long-term recovery, she's still listening. And it's hard for her to understand that the symptomology of this disease, if I throw that out, that it's a disease, people get irate. But see, we know that. See, that the American Medical Association has set up direct criteria that we have to meet to be a disease. And I believe you only have to meet five in alcoholism and addiction, substance use disorder meets, I believe, 22 of them. Wow. And people go, well, it's not a disease. And I go, well, if it's not a disease, then you need to get your doctorate, become cream of the crop and get on the American Medical Association board. And you need to change the definition of what a disease is, because by definition, it is a disease and um, it's a mental health condition, you know, and so it rewires the brain. And uh, five, five things that I can tell you that it does right off the top of my head. It's progressive. It can be fatal. Uh, it attacks at least one major uh, organ of the body. And, and, and it's treatable. Um, that's only four, but that, that's the four big ones, you know, like those are things that's, that's disease criteria. And so it's how we look at it. So if we change how we look at it, we're more willing to engage with it. We're more willing to talk about it. See, it's an uncomfortable conversation to go up and go, Joe, I think you're drinking, I think you're using drugs. Well, no one wants to have that. But if we start treating it as a health condition that it is, then it's like, hey, Joe, I, I, you know, I think your cholesterol might be high. It's the same kind of concept. And we don't call somebody with cancer a cancer, but we call somebody with substance use disorder an addict, and it becomes their identity. And all along of that comes all that baggage. So, you know, and, and I, I could ramble on and on. I know I've taken up so much of your time. No, you not at all. Questions. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, but it, it's, it, I think it's just the way we approach it as a society. Uh, in my home, my kids know daddy's, daddy's a person in long-term recovery with substance use disorder. We're not ashamed. You know, they tell their friends at school. And maybe when they just tell their friends at school, you know what? Everybody is connected to somebody. There's, there's uh, 320 million Americans in this country. There's over 25 million Americans in long-term recovery and 25 million Americans in need of recovery. That's 50 million Americans even walking that journey or in need of that journey. Well, let's just attach one loved one to them. Just one, just my mother, my wife, just one. That's 100 million Americans. Well, that's the lowest possible common denominator of one, 100, one in 3.2 at the lowest, easiest math. We all know it's more than that. They say that an alcoholic and addict, a person with substance use disorder, uh, they greatly, greatly impact 10 to 42 individuals in their life. Mm-hmm. I'm just attaching one. It's how we look at it. If all of a sudden we see that it doesn't, it isn't something that we have to hide in the corners. I see, see people come into the office and, and they're embarrassed to be there. Why? Why are you embarrassed? You have a health condition. You know, why are you embarrassed? It's, it's okay. 
you know, I, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, I, I don't even remember the original question. I just went <laughs> off on the, on my own train there. I apologize. You you gave a better answer than I ever could, obviously, in that uh, even more than the question warranted. But just uh, the, the next topic I wanted to get into, and I'm sure I'd have a follow-up in this one, but just what would you give advice as a counselor and, yes, someone that's been that's in recovery, uh, if there is a friend or family member, a loved one that is in the throes of addiction and uh, I didn't know how much time I had to get into the hot topic of marijuana, but the obvious of alcohol, prescription pills. Um, so what advice would you give someone who maybe they haven't admitted it to everybody, but maybe they even have a problem and, and they might not be listening, but someone listening could help that person? What what advice uh, would you give them? Does it come, like you said in your first couple answers, does it come down to they've got to make that discovery or is it people helping them get to that discovery? We can coax them along. You know, we remove the resources that allow them to continue the behavior. We don't get confrontational about it. There's no need to be confrontational. You know, Albert Einstein called insanity. He said, he's doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Well, that's what we do a lot of times with people with substance use disorder. It's insanity. Well, if I don't like my outcome, I probably need to change my method. And so if you're trying to deal with somebody with this issue, then you got to change your method a little bit. Well, if they want to argue, well, then don't argue. I remember when I was early in recovery and I, uh, my wife and I got into a fight, a uh, big argument. And I went and I, I found this really cool little cat in recovery. And he goes, oh, you want me to fix your problem, young man? I said, yeah. He goes, he says, you're arguing with your wife. I said, yeah. And he goes, well, don't argue. <laughs> that was the answer. You know, that was, that was the simple answer. Just don't argue. And, and, and it worked. And it worked. And so it's really hard to do that. Another thing that I would absolutely tell somebody either that it is listening and they have an issue and they're for, go talk to a professional, the family. You need to talk to a professional because this is a family disorder. This is a family disease. Everybody gets sicker. Nobody is better off in the throes of substance use disorder as a family or as a person than they were at the beginning. And so, you know, there's four components to the human being, mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical. Well, I can guarantee you that that at least three of those, maybe not physical, but um, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, where everybody is is not as healthy. And and it, go see a professional because each situation is going to be unique to that person. And so maybe there's going to be unique and individualized approaches you need to take within the home, within the conversation, within the way you love or put those boundaries up that are going to be unique to you. And that would be my biggest advice. Go talk to a professional. See somebody. There's your story that, that you know is true. And from your experience as a professional, most people, because it seems like you had that sobbing moment in your driveway. Is there more success with recovery by people that are coaxed there or people like you that it took a long time, but you eventually got to that spot where you knew you needed help? The numbers are identical. Okay. The numbers are, are identical. People that say are it's forced treatment. Well, in the, in the United States, there's no such such thing as forced treatment, even if it's incarcerated uh, care, incarcerated rehabilitation uh, services. Um, they still have to sign for that and agree to that. So they didn't, they didn't make them go there because there's always another option. The option is lo- be locked up without a program and probably for longer. And that's how the system is, is, is geared. It's like you either take this program for help for a year or you go get locked up for three years. And I like that. You use the leverage you have to get them to where you need them to be because they probably don't know what's good for them anyway or they wouldn't be in the situation that they're in. 
the the numbers are identical pretty much. It's, it's minimal difference. Interesting. Minimal difference. Yeah. It's I was intrigued by that too. Cause I, you know, I went to I went to treatment three times uh because the state of Texas thought it was best for me. And um and then after I was done with all of that, I went a fourth time on my own. And um yeah. I'll say this. Somebody that keeps going to treatment, most people have to go more than once. Uh in the end, it's all those things you'll, it's planting seeds, man. That's what, that's what I'm in the business of a lot of times. It's just planting seeds mm-hmm. and hopefully they'll grow, you know, and at one point they will. And when you decide when that person makes that decision, all those things that you heard five, 10, 15, it'll come back to you. You know, the really important, powerful, impactful things will come back to you and, and you'll be able to utilize it then. As far as what people are getting treated for, is it alcohol and then opioids with heroin included in there, marijuana, which I know is a whole other series of podcasts. Uh, what are people recovering from and what are people getting treated for? If that's not private information, if you're allowed and just if uh, yeah. on in a big you, picture, eye in the sky kind you, of view. Are you talking about like, well, we can look at the East Texas area and really the, the three you're going to see in East Texas area is alcohol and methamphetamine. And then, and then cannabis use disorder is like you said, that's a whole other it's just a whole other ball of wax to deal with. But uh, alcohol and methamphetamine are probably the kings as far as like what you're going to see more of around here. Uh, opioids are an issue, but it's it's really hitting a different demographic around just the state of Texas really split. And it's really hitting more uh, upper middle class. And so it's not talked about as much, you know, or or they're getting their care. And it's not in the newspaper so much or so something, but it's not really, it's just not as prominent in, in, in East Texas as it is in other areas, especially cities. You get around Dallas and Houston and San Antonio, and there's a heroin, there's an opioid problem, there's a pain pill problem. There's doctor, doctor shoppers there, you know, and they just, you walk in and get your script. So, yeah, but that's really what we deal with around here, you know. And, and something I'm, I'm passionate about, and I, I've, I've talked about it on my own podcast is uh, mental health. And I started getting, I had two brothers that passed away and long story short, just for the sake of time condensing it, I've, I've been seeing a counselor, a psychologist for the last seven, eight months. And it's, it's done amazing things, not only just getting that off my chest, but again, long winded question from the mental health side of things, from the data that I know, please set me straight. But most people that get treated for, Substance abuse also have, or any any abuse have, apologies, I don't know the specific term, but just mental health episodes or mental health issues. I want to use your right language. So with the, the field of dual diagnosis, how do you deal with that since you said Hughes Center does a lot of with on the mental health side? It's something I'm really passionate about. I'd love to get uh, some, some prevention out there in that field, but just you know me well enough by now. That's a, a loaded question, so go ahead and run with it, sir. Dual diagnosis is... It's a it's a difficult thing to deal with. Um, I think mental health becomes the primary approach. That's the general consensus consensus among us as in the field. Uh, we look at because if a person it has suffers from a mental health condition, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, PTSD, the list goes on. A lot of PTSD involved with individuals with uh, substance use disorder. If you have somebody with with PTSD, schizophrenia, any of these conditions, it's important that you treat those 
as the primary condition, I think, is the, like I said, the general consensus among us. You have to treat that because if you treat somebody for substance use disorder, but they're still having these big emotional spikes and, and valleys, drugs and alcohol were never my problem, ever. I'd never been, never been my problem. It, the problem was my inability to cope with life. Well, so if my inability to cope with life is the issue, well, think about how that com- compounds with somebody with, with mental health conditions. I don't talk a lot about it a lot, but to be very candid here, you know, I was diagnosed as a, a manic depressive early in life. And I've always struggled with, uh, I'm very socially awkward and it may not seem like that. I think a lot of people from the outside, they see Brent and they're like, oh, he, he's jokes and he kids and he smiles. But that's the, that's the, you know, it's the tears of a clown, you know, I guess, you know, and, and it's, it's skills you learn as you go along, but to deal with the mental health approach, I think, what came first, the chicken or the egg, a lot of times is the question. Do yes. the drugs call the mental health? Do the mental health calls the drug use? Who knows? Uh, but you do have to treat on both. How, we, how I deal with it is I make sure that we get a team effort involved. Um, you have to treat the symptomology. I mean, you have to treat the core issue and not just the symptomology. Like, why do people use and drink? Well, it's probably because they're inadequate feeling they feel inadequate it's probably because they can't handle the stress they can't handle the anxiety they can't handle the emotional spikes once again so it's also important to bring in another clinician that's certified in that field and that scope to help them and then to be in communication with them this is what i'm seeing over here and you got to be upfront with the with the client about that you got to go okay well i'm going to bring in a team and you have to give them the understanding that it's about their care that you, that you care about them i'm going to bring in another professional and we're going to be in communication because we're here to help you you have a team on your side because a lot of the problem dealing with people with mental health and with substance use is that they feel alone. They don't feel like anybody understands their pain. And I think that's uh, part of the hardwired uh, human experience. At some point for each and every one of us, we feel like no one knows what we're going through. It's that connection. It's that connectedness. It's my inability to connect with God and others that, that causes these issues that I have. You know, And so with mental health, I it's a tough one. It's the same kind of, you know, I think that's why substance use treatment and mental health treatment, why we've partnered up in the past few years is because we felt like the outcasts that no one wanted to help us. So we were like, well, let's join forces. And if we join forces, our voice is louder. And so we also know that that's what we're looking at. Um, they say that individuals on probation that receive treatment for substance use over 60% of them, it's actually closer to 70% of them, have mental health condition of some kind. Yeah. Maybe that's yeah. the one I was fishing for because yeah. um, I know one stat I heard from my counselor was that one out of – because I want to go into like the field now. I do tobacco prevention with young people because the easiest thing is to never get started. So that's the right. best uh, cure. But um, one out of five school children um, have a mental health a mental health condition. Mental health condition. Yeah, condition was the word. One out of five students have a mental health condition. So out of that 20%, only 20 more percent of that small number get treated. So there's a huge gap in there. And what I did for like an average size school, like your sports guy, you know, it, like a 4A high school or 4A junior high, is that there's about 80 for every 400 students, there's about 85 out there that have this mental health condition that goes left untreated. And what I would think, and I guess this is, it started out as a statement, but more of a question. If you got to some of those mental health conditions early, 
does that, I would think, prevents the coping. This is the non-counselor side of me asking what I think is an obvious question. Does that prevent coping down the line? I was told one time that my job, my number one job, my only job really as a parent is to help my child learn how to problem solve. It doesn't matter what that problem is. You don't know what you're having for lunch, learn how to solve that problem. I don't know how to, you know, my, my, I got a fat, flat tire. Solve that problem. Not knowing how to cope with life, we got to learn how to solve that problem. So we have to properly equip them with the tools because if, if we give them the tools, uh, you know, there's a wonderful, uh, you know, Chris Heron, I bet. Chris oh. Heron, uh, they did a, yeah. Yeah, very powerful basketball player, played Fresno State, yeah. Boston College. He goes around and does speaking tours. To kids, yeah, right? incredible. He has a Heron project, amazing guy. Uh, I got to meet Chris one time. Super really? Cool. Guy. cool yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like tearful moment. Like, uh, just he was the greatest guy. And he, and he has this uh, wonderful, wonderful speech that he does for kids. His job, his, his focus right now is on prevention. Mm-hmm. And he has this wonderful, wonderful speech. You should look it up. It's, it's, I can't find it on YouTube. Uh, you can buy it, though. And it's called The First Day. I've seen it, yeah. No one, yeah, no one talks about The First Day. And so I think our job is to help those kids so that that first day of use doesn't occur. So that first day of cutting doesn't occur. So that first day of isolating, and I know we can't prevent it all. You, that would be that would be ridiculous to, to assume such. But what we can do is try to uh, take it more seriously. I have children. It's hard to talk about those topics with these guys, mm-hmm. you know, to make that sure that they're equipped. Because uh, I just want to go to Sonic and get a cherry limeade. I don't want to talk about if they're depressed about what's going on in their daily routine because that's heavy. That's real heavy stuff. But if we're going to do that, that we have to figure out how to implement those programs with those teenagers. And that's, you know, talking about earlier with the coalition. I know we're big with working with teenagers and I love that because we have to give them these tools so that they know that they're not so alone. That first day, that moment when you feel so- you're already going through so much when you're a teenager, an adolescent, your, your, your body is changing so much and it's just going crazy on you. And then to deal with these emotional and mental health issues is um, they definitely feel, and that's embarrassing. And um, the fact is that, that not all kids are nice. And so then they walk into this environment that they're worried that they're going to be made fun of, that they say that they, 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 uh, they're depressed or they're a cutter. That's a big issue. I didn't realize how big it was and still, until I started talking to counseling teenagers is that there's a lot of them that do that and 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 that's a i think it's a microcosm of what, what what is happening to them it's a tougher world to live in than you and i were grew up in mm-hmm. jp it's just i don't know I, I i didn't have the internet you know i didn't have the internet i didn't like we didn't we we had uh mario and and mike tyson's punch out there, there wasn't go. like <laughs> yeah you didn't you didn't get online and like have facebook and bully people online, you know, like, like we went to the blacktop and drank out of water hoses. That's a lot simpler. You know, Mm -hmm. they're just, they deal with something. So my boy is 12. He's got a phone that has data that, and I was like, I'll never be that, but he was the last one. I'm like, well, I don't want him to be the last guy either. So here's a phone, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's the world they live in. And so they, they, can you imagine the pressures that they're dealing with? I can't, I I watch it. I'm like, I don't know, man. I, I can tell you the code to Mike Tyson. That's a 07373596. Punch that in. Have some fun with that. Let's simplify our world. And uh, they just can't do that. There's no there's no going in reverse where these kids are. So you can only imagine the stress and the mental health they're dealing with, man. Yeah. Tough, tough, yeah. tough world. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, finally, what are some we, – we touched on a lot of bold things, but uh, what's a big idea you have that the coalition – 
could do or should do, and I framed it with another guest, uh, Macy Dover, in our last episode. What can we do better? What's something that, um, from your specific, that's the reason you're on the coalition, for those that don't know, we, no, we have people from different parts of the community. So what's something that you think we could do or should do uh, better? You know, or different, something I, like that. I think I think something we could do is, you know, one of the hardest things for somebody with a, a criminal background. And remember, 78 percent of people who are locked up are nonviolent drug offenders. So a lot of times when you look at the people with what we call a criminal background, there's another term criminal. We call them criminal. Or we call them offenders. And they're people. We forget to call them people. Well, those people have families. And um, so I think one of the things. You know, at the coalition, we have like, I know hundreds of people. I, I know business owners. I'm sure everybody knows this local community and everybody's got a connection to a lot of people. If we could somehow figure out how to create a network for people that are in a recovery or people that have a criminal background uh, and they need a job, a job is a huge motivator. But we all know a business owner or somebody and we ask them, you know, okay, can, can we start some sort of small like initiative to help these people go over here? Yeah. They're, they're on our list. We have a list of people that were, are willing to give you an interview and see if we can maybe give a lot of people are, you know, they need a job. And that's one of the hardest things. Cause there's a, there's a job. There's a, there's a little box you have to check that not everybody on probation, not everybody in recovery has to check this, but it says, have you ever been convicted of a felony? or, or uh, deferred adjudication. And so even if you didn't get convicted as a felon, you got deferred adjudication, you still end up in the felon stack, which means that you don't get this job really. I mean, all, all in all, that's pretty much what that stack means. So we, if we could start at like a grassroots level locally and like talk to business owners, and there's grant money out there where you can get grants and you can help pay their salary. Look, if you'll hire these people, there's money that we can. And I, I don't know the process behind that. I do know they exist. John Schenholzer, by the way, the guy I mentioned earlier. I wrote he's it down. Big okay. on, yeah. yeah, he 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 has a lot of information on that stuff. Super cool guy. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, something like that where we help these people that we really want to help. I I I, I don't want to dismiss people when they make mistakes. I think if we all start looking at what we've done in our own lives. Um, a lot of the difference between people with substance use disorder or mental health conditions and those of us that well, I'm with that, I'm in that group, but those outside of that group, uh, they just didn't get caught or their, their downfall, their vice might not be illegal. It doesn't make any of us any better or any worse. We're all human and we have to find that human connection. We have to find that middle, that common ground. You know, this country is very divisive right now and it breaks my heart. Mm -hmm. You know, like we all got to figure out ways and maybe that's just one way we can come together as a community and stop seeing the differences and start seeing the similarities. The differences will kill us all spiritually, emotionally, the common ground. That's going to save us. That's going to help us. That's going to help us connect. And that's going to help me look at you and you look at me and I smile because mm -hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to fight with somebody that I have something in common with, you know? And, and I think that that's a, maybe a program that we could somehow do. Maybe it's just a list, just a network. And we start giving those out to people that we know could use it. You know, if you know somebody that needs a job, have them call this person. This person's going to call the people on this list. See what you're most suited for. Maybe they can get you a job. Because I'll tell you this, if you're ever stranded on a desert island, okay, first person you want on your team is somebody in long-term recovery. They have a skill set like you can't even imagine. They're like MacGyver. 
I promise you, it's okay. weird what these people, I know, I'm like, I know some of these things. Like we just, like you end up in these weird situations and you learn a skill on how not to die. Very <laughs> industrious, the craziest right? thing, yeah. you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Well, brother, I knew this would be a great episode and a lot of it's because of our uh, personal history together, uh, but it far exceeded anything I could expect. You really fired me Thank up you. and like you do with your, you, like you said a, a long time ago in the, in the chat, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you give people hope. And that is what uh, I know without saying that you would agree with that. That's a really cool gig when you can give people hope. So thanks cool, for what man. you do. And uh, if Thank you for having me, yeah, brother. And what uh, to not that you're uh, totally in the business of hawking things here, but uh, in the interest that um, want to get your uh, vital data out there. If, if somebody does need hope, how could they help? How could they and hope to, how could they contact you at Hughes Center? And, uh, okay. Anybody? Uh, you can look us up at HughesCenter.com. Uh, you can also go on the, on, the, uh, on, the, uh, on the App Store or the Play Store, depending on if you have an Android or an iPhone. And we have an app. And just look, just look up Hughes Center. It's going to be the first one there, I believe. And there's all our connections. We're on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, we're on all social media accounts. We have our own podcast. If you want to listen to the podcast, they're on the app. Uh, there's also like curriculum material there. It's super cool. It's a way to connect with us. If you ever want to call us, uh, you can call us at 409-622-0292. And you'll speak to the wonderful, amazing Courtney. She's amazing. And um, you can get, you can call me. I, I get my number out. That's fine. 409 6220106. I think I gave you the wrong number on Courtney. It's 409-622-9252. But, uh, but call me, call Courtney, connect with us on the internet. Um, we're always willing to come chat with you, talk with you. If you need somebody to come speak at an, an engagement or something like that, just give us a shout. I'm more than willing. Any of us will find somebody to come out and maybe do some education or just connect and maybe need some help. We're, we're more than happy to be there. You're doing great work, brother. Even though I appreciate it. Michael Jordan is clearly the best player of no, all time. Please. At least you didn't Thank say LeBron. You. you know, at least you didn't say LeBron. Well, that's a whole other discussion because he's <laughs> in the discussion. I don't care what anybody says. He's in the discussion. He's in the discussion. We'll see what happens when it's all said and done. But uh, you know, uh, we'll see. And this year, it's probably going to be the Clippers if my Rockets don't beat them. So we'll see. We'll see. All right, brother. That was tremendous. Really, really look forward to uh, connect. Let's get some uh, grub here sooner than later. That sounds like a wonderful plan. I can't thank you enough for having me on. I appreciate it so much. A huge thank you to Brent Tanksley of Hughes Center Counseling. He just gave you that vital data. But again, 409-622-0106, 409-622-9252. You can find them on all their social media platforms. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of the Coalition 936 podcast, coming together for a better community. Don't forget to subscribe. That really helps us out on the popular podcast outlets and spread the word. We've got a project quit still going on. Bonnie can help you quit tobacco. If you or someone you know wants to quit tobacco, we can help project-quit.org or call us 936-634-9308. Have a great rest of this day or night. God bless, and we'll talk to you on the next edition of the Coalition Podcast.